You're listening to the Ask Drone You podcast. You ask, we answer your drone questions. Whether you're here to turn your passion into profit or you simply fly for fun, we're a community of learners and teachers who aspire to achieve greatness. We are Drone You. Hey everyone, and welcome to another uh, episode of Ask Drone You. My name is Paul. And I'm Rob. Super glad to be hanging out with you. Thank you so much for spending a few minutes of your day with us. Man, we appreciate it. And I don't know why I'm talking at 1.3. Um, I listen to podcasts at 1.2, 1.3. I think you do too, right? I do too, yeah. Yeah, or YouTube or wherever they'll let you. Um, so maybe I'm talking that way all of a sudden because that's how I listen. Well, hey, I mean, you know what? Uh, you talk fast. You typically are trying to get a lot of information out there. Yeah. There's a danger, obviously, in talking too fast. Um, but Or too anyway, slow. Or too slow. No, seriously, we are uh, thankful, just happy to be here and and to know there's at least a couple of you out there listening. Yeah, today we've got an interesting show, um, and I would say that this is really for our high-precision mappers, our people who are in engineering, they're in surveying, they've got to have a high degree of accuracy, and I'm really glad that this question is coming up because it showcases the maturity of the industry. It showcases that drone mapping photogrammetric engines cannot be like consumer electronics and dumb down the user experience and still expect to get high degrees of accuracy. And I think, you know, one of the fundamental things I talk about in the mapping class all the time is, and I'll pull up drone deploy, I'll pull up propeller, I'll pull up maps made easy, I'll pull up, uh, there's almost all of them are like this, but I'll show in Pix4D where we are marking GCPs and I teach them that how much you zoom into that photo and mark that GCP will have a mathematical uh, consequence to your absolute accuracy, meaning how much you zoom in and mark that photo is going to have an impact on your overall accuracy. And the way that I try to explain this in class is, you know, Rob, if I had a tape measure in my hand and I wanted to measure this wall, would you be looking at the tape measure from 10 feet away? Or would you want to be essentially at eyesight, you know, six to 12 inches away from the tape saying, okay, four feet, one inch and three eighths? You know? Yeah, especially at my age. Well, I mean, man, <laughs> I'm not touching that one. My eyes are starting to go. I heard some. Well, well, there, I guess there are 10 year olds whose eyes are going. So I shouldn't make it about age. I, I wonder how much is genes, too, because we just had a student who said, as soon as I turned 50, my eyes just went. And I mean, Rob just made it over the hump and he's doing just I fine. No, that's not. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, my dad had eye issues from the very get go. Oh, yeah. No, that's funny. I turn 50. I don't think it works that way. But you know what? Placebo. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but going back to the uh, the analogy of looking at a tape measure, you want to be up close so you can actually see where that real line is. You know, think of science class when you're measuring water in a beaker and they tell you to get eye level with the water so you can see exactly where eight ounces is. You know, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, I guess it depends on how accurate you need to be. Like if... I'm just, okay, those are, looks like 36 inches wide. So yeah, it looks about 72 inches. Look about Well, and that's actually, feet. I think, a, an issue that in the maturity of the drone industry and especially photogrammetry is going to become an issue because that's very subjective, especially when a lot of people are doing hmm. maps and models for engineering purposes, but they're getting very subjective about the workflows of creating these maps that they're making very important decisions off of. So, you know, kind of back to my example of 
zooming all the way in, marking that GCP. Most of these cloud processors, the, the very best one that I have seen was Drone Deploy where you can zoom in halfway to an image. Not 100%, but halfway. So if you think about it, if you are only able to zoom in halfway or even 75% or 80% and not all the way down to pixel level, your accuracy will have a negative consequence because of just that trigonomic effect right there, okay? Which may or may not be important in that particular application, deliverable, et cetera. True, but- So in, you have to know that. True, but in the wake of an audience of engineers, mm -hmm. surveyors, and in construction, and I mean construction legal decisions, not construction like progression, not construction like marketing, uh, not like, uh, you know, non-geo-reference orthos used in time lapses, none of that, right. okay? But when talking about- the audience of engineers, surveyors, geospatial intelligence, anything that has anything to do with geospatial information, then I think it's crucial to understand that a lot of these cloud softwares are really simplifying the user interface to make it easier to create these maps and models. What's the consequence of that much poorer accuracy? And in a lot of these cloud softwares, you can't even pull up things like ellipsoid error to determine how accurate the human element of marking the GCPs was. Mm -hmm. And this has nothing to do with the other three points I want to make after we listen to this question. Because oh, yeah. We haven't even listened to the question no, yet. No, no, no. <laughs> because there are some, some very real issues in regards to this very particular question. So I think it also proves another point about a lot of hype and marketing in this industry about, hey, you only need one GCP to do geo-reference maps and models. That's horse caca, okay? That, uh, <laughs> that is about as good as uh, eating a Snickers bar off of a hot sidewalk on a 110-degree day. It just doesn't work. So hmm. that said, I didn't have a better analogy. I was trying to think of one of the crazy Southern things i That does I've sound heard. pretty horrible. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll go with it. So uh, I wanted to be like, it's about as accurate as a cow pissing off the side of a cliff and landing on a rock. Some Remember one of our students said something like that once. And I was like, huh? I'd go back to the Snickers one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, before we get to the question, our question today is brought to you by our in-person classes. We are back to traveling. Uh, we thought before all the mass stuff ended that we would kind of get back to normal this year. Um, that said, we've got classes in Denver and we've got classes in Dallas coming up. And if you're wondering why, it's because here at DroneU, we are moving our headquarters from an aviation market that's representative of 1.48 billion to an aviation market that's representative of 48.6 billion. I'll let you do the data dump and figure out where we're moving. All right, Rob, play that question. <laughs> Hi guys, my name is Bob and I work for a construction company in Western Pennsylvania. We use a Phantom 4 Pro RTK for topographical surveys of our job sites. And I was wondering if you can compare PIX4D to Propeller for data processing. We are currently with Propeller and we were sold on that you only need one arrow point for surveys on sites up to 100 acres and Propeller processing the data sets for us. But I've encountered issues with arrow points completely failing during surveys and getting data back with massive errors that aren't being caught by their data team. In our experience, our customer service has been rather poor and we are ready to take our money elsewhere. I was looking to switch to PIX4D but was concerned about the amount of ground control points and the time they require to set them up. So I want to get your thoughts on the two and what you'd recommend. I appreciate your time and look forward to hearing your answer. Thanks. 
Thank you, Bob. And thank you for the detailed question. We love that because it uh, makes it easier to answer and to answer in a more detailed way. So take it away, Paul. Okay there, Bob. (laughs) Let me get right into the news of photogrammetry. There you go. In our first piece, Paul will be answering this question. Rob will act like he doesn't know much, but he actually does know a good fair amount. So uh, that said, Bob, back to you. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, good show. Good show. Uh, okay, so first thing I want to mention, I did not hear this the first time we listened to the question, but heard it on the second time. He mentioned that he creates topographical maps uh, for surveying. I do want to say that Pix4D Mapper doesn't do the best job of topographical maps. We have a lot of clients who create their orthos, point clouds and other data deliverables and then put it into Esri, ArcGIS and create their topos there. Um, I know that PIX40 survey, they, if that might do a better job. I personally don't know. I know that they've tailored PIX40 survey for uh, certain surveying um, deliverables such as the ability to remove planimetrics and whatnot. So that said, that it would be something that I would ask you to investigate, Pix40 Mapper versus Survey. Um, now, that said, this kind of alludes to what I was explaining in, in the beginning of the show, that when you're using a cloud-based software, you have a lot of limitations in what you can control. Um, how you mark GCPs, you know, error on the X, Y, and Z, understanding what your true absolute error is, uh, etc., that also is outside and mutually exclusive from this ideology of using just one arrow point or just one GCP. Now, I will say, because I'm sure once Propeller hears this show that we're going to get a phone call, I will say in every class, every mapping class that we teach, we go over arrow points, okay? We love arrow points. We think that they're great. But Also, in every class, I talk about how you've got to have more GCPs than what you need because with arrow points, sometimes you don't always know if the arrow point has an error and is not collecting data. You don't know until post, essentially. Yes, and that's because... And that's what he's describing he's running into. Exactly, because arrow points are a PPK GPS. They're a post-processed kinematic GPS. Meaning, if you have errors collecting the data in the field, you don't figure it out until long after you've left the job site, right? That could be a problem, which is why, uh, you know, a lot of people prefer RTK GPS. I'm going to be putting out some new information on our MLID RS2. That thing, the developments that they have made are phenomenal. It's a phenomenal product. Truly love it. That said, if you need GCP targets, because don't forget, GCPs are two-part, one-part GPS, one-part target. If you want to learn why so many people buy our mapping landing pads, uh, I highly recommend uh, picking up a set of those landing pads. And this was my humble opportunity to sell landing pads, so thank you. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, that said, there are pros and cons between PPK and RTK GPS. One of the things that I will say, whether it's PPK or RTK, Having just one GCP, in my humble opinion, is not sufficient because if there is an error on that GCP for whatever reason, whether it's an arrow point, whether it's RTK GPS, you ruin the whole project and then you have to go do it over again. 
And so if you've got multiple GCPs or multiple arrow points, you can still use that data, negate the bad GCP, and still get a deliverable. The last three mapping classes that we've had, I've had two arrow points fail. Wow. Two times because of interference, another time because uh, the data didn't upload. We tried uploading again, still didn't work. Um, so that said, there's a couple issues here. One, I think having just one GCP is a uh, marketing slash hype thing. And about, by the way, I was at the DJI conference where Propeller first advertised using the P4P RTK with just one arrow point and being able to do everything. And I looked over at my buddy who knows surveying and I was like, uh-uh, there's just too much that can go wrong and you've got no redundancy. And what is the fundamental... Seems obvious. Uh, yeah, and what is one of the fundamental things we're taught as pilots that should also transgress into other things that we do? Redundancy, right? Mm -hmm. Having multiple forms to complete the same problem or solve the same problem. So that said, when it comes to using Propeller over Pix4D, the benefit of Pix4D is it's a desktop application. You control your data. You control all the settings. You can mark GCPs in the simple editor or in the full-blown editor, which we teach. You have so much more control over that data. There's thousands of file types that you can get depending on what you want. Um, and there are hidden menus to get certain files out, like a shapefile. Um, so that said, I would recommend Pix4DMapper. And again, survey might be better for topographical maps, just FYI. Um, I would recommend Pix4D Mapper because I can control my data. I own my data. Yes, the workflow is complicated, but I also know in these jobs that require this high precision, you need to have that control. It's complicated. It's, it's, it's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> uh, that's what happens when I go a couple minutes without speaking. Oh, I'll... Uh, no, no, that was not a hint. Okay. That was... That was a, Anyways, it's complicated, but it can be systematized totally. such that it no longer is complicated. Which, again, I think is one of the values in us teaching the class that we have is we've taught it so much. We have methodologies to make these systems easier to retain exactly. and apply. So, I mean, yeah, you're going to do some work up front. It's like anything good. Um, not any, I don't, I'm overgeneralizing today, it seems, but... You can take complication and systematize it and create these um, these usable, repeatable systems, and then it's no longer complicated. You just do it. And so, totally. yeah, you'd have a little work up front, but it's worth the work. Yeah, and by the way, if you're really interested in system in s systematizing, jeez. <laughs> I messed up the flow. I, I, I done did it. Uh, uh, if you have issues where you need full scale, Pix4D offers instruction on how to use things like Azure, AWS, these cloud processing servers, so that you can set up projects exactly how you want every single time with the craziest settings ever to get exactly what you want, but use cloud processors to scale it. I mean, you essentially mm. create your own cloud you know, software. We don't even teach that in the class right now, do we? When it comes up in questions, I talk about it. Okay. <laughs> it all depends on the audience, Rob. <laughs> no, no, and, and that's true. That's, yeah, so, that's fair. 
Um, which is a part of being an instructor is have is being able to read the audience. Okay, where what level are these guys at? Yeah, you what know? do they need? What are, what are their e- goals? Exactly. Yeah. Um, now that said, I personally love Propeller in their their processing in their cloud system because they can show progress over time for cut and fill. Like I honestly think mm. their vol their volume visualizations are probably the best on the internet right now. But again, you don't have an astronomical amount of control of the data, which is problematic, especially when you're in surveying, especially when you're in engineering, especially when you're in these verticals that require a very high degree of accuracy. And if you're using a cloud processor where you can't even see the ellipsoid error, you can't even see the projection error, and you don't even know what a good, um, let's say, cap is on projection error, let alone be able to see that information, then how are you ever going to be able to verify your data and your deliverable? How are you ever going to be able to stand behind it and say, yes, it's good to go. Yes, it's absolutely accurate to X degree. You know, I mean, this is a really important point. And it's something that I try to talk about every single time during these mapping classes, because a lot of people like, so Paul, how come you don't teach more on these other cloud engines? I'm like, well, we're about to go over drone deploy. But in an effort to be a good instructor, I need to teach you comprehensively. And in an effort to give you everything that you need to produce all these different deliverables, I want to teach you on a software that empowers you to do that. I don't want to teach you on a cloud-based software that focuses so primarily on the user interface that you lose all of these controls. You lose all these abilities to save data and rework data, re-manipulate data, and you're really limited. And that can be job-crushing. I have actually seen it happen dozens of times uh, you know, no single cloud processor. They're they're all guilty, um, and then they try to, you know, make it even more uh, simple and easy to use. For example, what what's the name of the company? Uh, Maps Made Easy. They have a new um, processing engine. They actually gave us credits to test it. And I went in there to go create a new project. And it's like, well, uh, your photos are more than seventy degrees of tilt. We can't take these photos. And I'm like sick. So I can't literally create some of the most highly valuable, high dollar, you know, deliverables that my clients want with this, but you're advertising that it does 3D uh, 3D models, but it doesn't. So now they do a great job though of just creating geo-reference orthos. But I would rather do that with Pix4D Mapper because I can look at my quality report. I can look at projection error. I can look look at ellipsoid error. And if my ellipsoid isn't plumb to the ground and it's, you know, cockeyed like this bottle of water that I'm holding, well, then I know, okay, well, I marked too many images over on this side of the GCP and I need to redistribute to mm. photos over here. And a lot of people don't even know how in Pix4D to show which photos were marked so that you can look at the GCP and the photos that you marked like changing a tire, meaning that the photos that you mark around the GCP are in a relative circle. Okay, because again, if you have too many photos on one side, you get this error, this oblique error from one side to another. This will throw off your absolute accuracy. These are things that people don't talk about because they don't want you to know that these things exist because as soon as you know that they exist, you start to realize just how accurate your maps and models really are. Or are not. Exactly. I rest, I, I rest my case there, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think ultimately too, though, it does come down to 
the user, their needs, and the ultimate deliverables. And a lot of those other solutions are more than adequate, in fact, good at a lot of those deliverables. Well, let's take a non-geo-reference orthomosaic, right? Pix40 uh, React, 30 bucks a month, fastest generator of orthos out there, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of people don't know. You can only shoot single grid nader. If you do a double grid and there's even a slight oblique, your roof lines are going to be jacked. So, Mm. you know, they're like you said, well, we got to look at this at like a nuance level, Paul, deliverables, client needs. And you're so right. And I and that's how we attack every client who comes to us that says, hey, I need training for my team. They do this. Okay, what's your deliverable? It's just like when we onboard a new team for props. What are the deliverables? I don't want to hear what you think your pilots need to do. What are the deliverables? Right. You tell me and I'll tell you what you need to learn. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Sorry to be aggressive, but it's true. So. <laughs> yeah, I guess <laughs> there are different ways to communicate that. Anyways, there's there, always. <laughs> there, yes. There's the Rob. Very nice. Very gentle. Apparently like Trump. Uh, no. And no? then there's me. And I'm going to tell you like it is. <laughs> and you're going to realize four years later that I was right. Oh, gosh. <laughs> There's a little political joke over there. Oh, so. man, man, man. <laughs> Anywho, this project that we're currently in the middle of and the things that they are doing with respect to commercial roofing and the use of Maps Made Easy, it seems to really be working in their workflows. Yeah, right? and, and again, a lot of these cloud softwares have great great systems for very specific deliverables, Mm -hmm. right? But they all advertise them as these macro solutions to all these various problems. Mm. And that is just not true. Yeah. And if you think about the way that they go about, you know, processing, it can't be true. Now, this is where you got to give Drone Deploy a little bit of credit, even though Drone Deploy guys, you guys still need to fix your mesh stuff. You need to be able to let people make MTPs. You want to crush all the other, you know, software engines. There are three things that you could do. And it'll, if you give me a quarter million, I'll tell you what they are. Now, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but that said, um, I, no, uh, that said, Drone Deploy, back to what I was saying, uh, Drone Deploy is getting really smart and wise about this. Their CEO, I have the utmost respect for. I really love him. He is very, very, very smart. They are determining which photogrammetric engine to use based off the deliverable. Interesting. Now that's next level. Yeah, that's awesome. So, and it's doing it algorithmically. I mean, mm-hmm. wow. Now they're not there yet, in my humble opinion, but they are very close. Well, all you can do is keep working towards it, right? Oh, that's how Until AI and there. machine learning works, right? Yeah. The more data you throw at it, the better the algo becomes. So hmm. that's cool. I mean, I think that that's a process that we all need to understand too. It's like you know, Elon Musk, Starlink. Well, we need users to use this thing to figure out how to you know the bugs and what to do, and people jump on board because he's very clear cut and hey, it's not going to be perfect at first, but we need your help to make it perfect. Yeah, you know? yeah, for sure. So, and the reward is you're grandfathered into the pricing. Because if it's anything like Comcast, chances are your price will double every two years. So, <laughs> Ish, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Cutting Anyways. that bill out was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Comcast. Uh, I don't apologize. No, I'm not. I uh, save $196 a month right now, uh, thanks to Bloomberg. So thanks, Bloomberg. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that said, when it comes to having highly accurate... Uh, topographical maps, orthomosaics, 
geo-reference orthos, geo-reference topos. PIX40 mapper, in my opinion, is going to give you the best accuracy. We even provide the statistics behind that. Now, don't forget, there is the human element. How you mark GCPs is trigonomically going to affect the way that your accuracy is produced and formulaically uh, produced as well. That was not a good sentence, but you understand what I mean. If I may, Bob, um, a quick plug. A lot of what Paul's talking about here, you would learn in the mapping class. 100%. In the in-person mapping class. 100%. So, I don't know. It might be a way to sort of um, speed up, straighten the learning curve, or at least lessen the learning curve for getting something like PIX4D in place instead of Propeller, if that's the way you choose to go, is by accelerating that learning process through mm. the mapping class plug over. By the way... The audience of the highly technical people, like engineers, civil engineers, mm. architects, surveyors, they're my favorite group to teach because you can just right in, like dive right in. And like no one's lost. Everyone's right there. And look, we all come from different places, myself included, okay? That's uh, a long learning curve for me. I, I really, my technical skills were highly limited. Um, nonetheless, did I believe I was actually capable and look where I am now. So that said, everything is possible. But, you know, it's kind of like the K. Anders Ericsson's uh, perfect practice model. In order to be the best, you have to, one, believe you can do it, and two, put yourself in situations where you're constantly being challenged with, with new problems, different variables and whatnot. And I feel like drone mapping and having all these different exercises does exactly that. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, you know, we went from teaching the mapping class with five exercises the last class we went through eight. Really? Yeah, eight. Hmm. Because that repetition, it's night and day difference in having people retain the information, especially the super deep nuanced systems of getting this accuracy. They get it through the repetition. Yeah. So, hmm. but I am really proud. I had a student uh, last class who on exercise four, which is essentially like our accuracy challenge. We want to see where students are. It's our way to kind of verify what you're learning and if you're capable to repeat what you've learned. Man, I had a I had a student who got 0 0.001 RMS error. Wow. Now I know technically when you look at a 20 megapixel image that that's not possible, but this is what Pix4D is saying the RMS error was. Obviously, we would have to take that and put it in a third-party software to truly discern absolute accuracy. I just want to make that clear. Um, but I was so impressed with this student. I mean, he nailed it. Absolutely wow. nailed it. Fantastic. Yeah. Love it. That's uh, invigorating in some ways as an instructor. I love seeing people succeed. Like, I'm like, yes! Because, like, I'll be down because, like, uh, there's certain type of students that I'm still, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm still working on... There's certain types of students uh, that I kind of struggle with. I'm getting better, though. Um, the overthinkers, uh, or we talked about this last time, uh, and I have to be careful about how I say this, but there are people who ask so many questions, they don't give themselves the chance to think about the question and if they can answer it themselves. You know, you just get in this pattern of asking questions. Do you think that's the Google Society? I don't, that's a really good question. We've gotten so used to just Google it, ask it. And that's dangerous. But but it's a really difficult balance as well, even as an instructor or as the person in question, because you need to be 
able to ask questions and you need to be able to allow yourself to do so, right? And like mm-hmm. essentially admit that you don't know something, but I hear and what you're okay saying and be okay with it. But I hear what you're saying about at least run the gears a little bit to try to figure it out first. Yeah. And if you had teachers in high school and college, they would do this to you like, well, think about this. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Do you think it's possible to get what you're asking for? You know, and, and they would challenge you to think about it before they answer the question, right? And then yeah. that forces you to really learn it. And this is uh, this is kind of me on my learning curve of instruction is like, how do I nicely and succinctly ask this person to one, believe in your capability of answering the question, two, take 10 seconds, think it through, think about the different systems that we've discussed. Do you know the answer to this question? And if not, I'm happy to answer the question. But the there are, and they're very rare, but there are students who just, it's rapid fire of questions. And it's like, have you even thought about the potential of the answers before you went 10 questions deep? Because with the answer to question number three, six, seven, and eight would be answered right now, you know? And so it's like a succession of questions and you're like, ah! (laughs) So that's all. It's not, I don't mind questions, okay? That's, That's what I'm trying to illustrate is everyone has questions. I'm talking about the habitual pattern question askers. Uh, who aren't giving themselves the chance and the patience to answer it themselves. So That's right. So don't worry about coming to an in-person class and be afraid of asking questions. That's not the point. No, not at all. So I actually— Run the gears. I love a lot of the recent reviews that we've gotten of like, I was nervous coming to Paul's class (laughs) because he seems a little— Thought he would have a Nerf gun. Outlandish. Shooting us in the eye. I I do have Nerf guns, and I will shoot you. (laughs) So I'm just kidding. I don't do that. But that's a good idea. Uh, Good idea, Rob. uh (laughs) Uh-oh. As long as we give them a Nerf gun, I'm down. So I can shoot you back. Limited bullets, though. No, I get no, no, way, no. I get no, no, way no. They get more bullets. No, no, no. I get more. <laughs> no. Uh, then I'm going to have to be really accurate and uh-huh. aim for, like, you know, right in the forehead. You're the instructor. <laughs> back to accuracy, Rob. That's right. <laughs> On that bombshell, that's going to do it for us today. My name is Paul. I'm Rob. <laughs> and uh, Rob's going to be going to Target and getting us some Nerf guns. <laughs> that's right. We believe that videos, images, words, and sounds have the absolute power to inform inspire and entertain we reject indecision confusion and vanity for they work against the community we are united under the virtues of safety and knowledge we are a training community of learners and teachers who encourage and energize each other to achieve greatness we are pilots videographers photographers freelancers business owners enthusiasts experts and apprentices. We are creators. We are the Drone Youth.